Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Reverend Nancy Neal. Nancy is director of the Church Relations Department at Bread for the World. She leads a dynamic team of church leaders who build and maintain Bread's national relationships with a racially and theologically diverse portfolio of denominations and church organizations. Nancy is a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and serves as a parish associate at Church of the Pilgrims in the DuPont Circle area of Washington, D.C. I give you Nancy Neal. Reverend Nancy Neal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's It's great to be here. Full disclosure, you are an old friend, and even though neither of us look old enough to be old friends... And you work for Bread for the World, which is located in Washington, D.C. Yes, I do. So just give us like 30 seconds on what your day, or maybe 45 seconds, on what your day in life is like as a minister who works at Bread for the World. Yeah. So I'm the director of church relations at Bread for the World. Um, we're an advocacy organization working to end hunger and poverty here in the U.S. and around the world. And my team works with... Uh, a wide variety of denominations and church organizations around the country, maintaining our relationships with those national bodies. So day to day, it's um, all kinds of fun things, whether it's traveling or working with my team or um, sitting in a lot of meetings. And it's, you know, I was playing golf years ago with in in Pittsburgh with actually some minister friends. and, And there was a guy who was a guest of a minister and he was receiving his MBA at, at, at a school in Pittsburgh and he was selected to be his sort of MBA commencement speaker at this university. And he said, I'm a little worried about it because I'm very controversial. I said, well, what are some controversial, you know, things you think about you? He's like, well, I'm pro-life and I'm totally against world hunger. I said, well, I, I you know, Pro-life is fine, but I'm sure there's at least half the crowd that's pro-world hunger there. So I wouldn't think. <laughs> but isn't that great? Like, bread for the world. With all these yeah. sort of controversial issues. Like, most people, wherever you are in the cultural spectrum, could say, hey, hunger sucks. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you don't have to sell the issue. No. We don't. I mean, we try to be really bipartisan in all of our work. Um, there are times when we've supported partisan legislation, but, like, um, often it's historically been bipartisan or um and mostly it's historically been bipartisan um so but we really do think that we can reach across a wide spectrum of church folks i mean we have like church of god of prophecy folks we have presbyterians we have lutherans and methodists we have the african methodist episcopal church i mean we've got the nae working with us like all kinds of folks so in the age of keto do you ever have any problem like hey why do we have to have be so carb focused? Like, why, why can't we just be calories for the world or nutrition for the world? Are there are there just anti carb people that you trigger? Um, I've never had that issue, honestly. Like, I, I mean, I've had a conversation about it, but probably with you a couple of years ago. Um, but I haven't. No, I, I probably just started a trigger warning. I probably just started it. 
Like there's people that are like, hey, you made my need for a safe space. <laughs> so let's jump into our text. You have Hosea yeah. 11, 1 through 11. Hosea only pops up like a couple times in the lectionary. So this is interesting. Like if you're preaching on it, you probably have to do a little bit of contextual stuff. But here we have this interesting verse where, you know, you, you, the whole story is this God because this prophet Hosea and says, take this woman Gomer. She's a prostitute. As your wife, you're going to have these children. And this whole dramatic sort of made-for-TV, lifetime-after-dark story uh, becomes a parable, some an allegory for God's relationship with Israel. And here we have, it seems like the Lord is looking back at it saying, when you were a child, I did this, and now, <laughs> right? Yeah. I love it, though. I mean, I have to say, I had, like, warm and fuzzy feelings when I was reading it. But I, but last week was the crazy, uh, messy story of of the prostitute and the um, marriage and all that crazy nonsense. I mean, the Probably. whole thing is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And here we kind of move to the end of the chapter, and, like, the Lord is... is saying, you know, when you were in Egypt, I, I called, you know, you my son, you know, this child. And the more they called, the more they went away. And and, and so he's saying, like, I took you out of, of Egypt and says, I kind of gently taught you to walk. And then, you know, it's like the more I'm there, the more, you know, it, it's it's a sort of riff on the Morrissey song. Like, the more you ignore me, the, the closer I get almost or something. But like, you know, <laughs> they get further, the Lord gets closer, it, 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 you know, but it seems like... uh that Israel here is kind of portrayed as this child who was in desperate and dire straits and it doesn't seem to be a grateful child. Well, you know, I, my own experience, like as a Christian human being is that like, I've always been kind of terrified of being known by God and have always tried to hide in some ways. And so I wonder if some of this is just that, that, I mean, this, this text is so intimate. I mean, this idea of, um, I was like, I was to them, like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. I mean, this like super close, loving, whatever, like mom stuff, you know, it makes you long for your mother in a way. And, and, uh, so this idea of like, that's so intense and so um, powerful that you sometimes want to just run away and go the other way. Um, but this idea of sacrificing to balls and offering incense to idols, I mean, how it, we always get caught up in that stuff, like prioritizing so many things other than, than God and going in different directions. Yeah. And then it's, it's interesting because the turning point I think comes in, uh, verse nine, you know, I'm not going to execute my burning anger. I'm not again going to destroy Ephraim. He says, you know, for I am God and not, and some translations say man, some say mortal, some say human being. But it's interesting because the Hebrew here is not Adam, right? It's not like if we were thinking of God versus human, it would be mm-hmm. Adam, but it's gendered. It's ish. It's male. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, it's interesting. So John Goldingay, who actually have interviewed, uh, he's a great guy and has written some really interesting stuff on Old Testament theology and things like that. He says that the use of Ish versus Adam 
it implies the assumption there is something different between the relationship that men and women have with their children. No doubt cultural factors operate here, yet physiological ones may also operate. Hosea's statements about his children in chapters 1 through 3 are perhaps ones that a woman could never make. But God's relationship with Israel is more like a mother's relationship with her children than a father's. A father is more likely to express anger. A mother is more likely to absorb it. In this respect, God is more like a mother than a father. Motherhood involves your whole being in a way that fatherhood does not. Some such awareness lies behind verses 8 through 9. Perhaps Hosea learned it from Gomer. Whether this is so or not, Hosea seems to be reflecting the nature of a woman's experience and letting that contribute to an understanding of God's relationship with Israel. That provides a positive counterpart to the more negative tone of chapters 1 through 3. I mean, that's interesting. I, I mean, that's an interesting insight on, on one sort of noun choice of Hosea's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have this, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warmer, warm and tender. I mean, and, and I think I saw that this like churns within me and, and, uh, there's this idea of sympathy that, um, I just want, it's, it's much more female gendered in its, in its, um, language. Um, but then you have this fierce anger, but it goes, and then you have this roar of like a lion, you know, I, they shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion when he roars. Um, you know, and, you know, I was trying to figure out, is that like God or is God like a lion that they're following finally? And then they come back here. Um, but so it's it sort of one, I wondered, you know, is that this juxtaposition of the female and male um, together in that in there? Yeah, it's interesting too because like two, I have two thoughts. One is, you know, Tom Torrance, a great Scottish theologian, said God is not the unmoved mover. Uh, you, it, it's he's the most moved mover. God is the most moved mover, and so God is not a passionless God. And yet, God's experience of the of, of emotion of these things are different than ours, right? Because when we're angry, angry, we're just possessed by it, and and somehow God is not. And the other thing I was thinking of is Jesus when he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've wept over you. How I've longed to gather you up like a mother under a mother hand on her wings. N.T. Wright says that that's a a barnyard kind of thing. Where if there was a barn fire, the mother hen would go over her chicks, and she'd be charred, and then you'd find the chicks alive. And so there's this. It's almost as if this this maternal compassion is the same compassion that is in the incarnation of God bearing our our own burdens. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. So on to Colossians, we have uh, the third chapter, verses 1 through 11. This church at Colossae, which is a church Paul did not start, and yet that does not uh, I feel like it's it's like me. Whether or not I, I know who you are, it won't stop me from giving you my opinion. Uh, <laughs> so, so Paul is like writing this letter to these people that he's not, uh, but he has some interpersonal connections. And it seems like, you know, there's always this issue in the, these New Testament letters that Paul's writing. It's always like they, people have Jesus and, and things are going great. And then somebody says, Jesus is great. You just need something else. 
you need calendar observance or a little Jewish mysticism or a little bit of these mystery things or this or that. Like, Jesus is great. Just let me give you something else, though. <laughs> and, and Paul's like, seems to be struggling. Like, he's, he, he seems genuinely encouraged by some stories he hears, but then there's this some sort of teaching, which we don't know completely what it is. But, but you know, it's interesting because he exhorts them in the middle of this section to you know turn away from these things that are not life-giving but then but the verse is bracketed by the sort of um you know if you've then been raised with christ you know and then this idea that you know christ has been you know that your life here is you know hidden with god in christ so it's it's not imperative indicative like do this and you'll be saved and you'll be blessed it's more like this is who you are, now live into it, right? It's, 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 it's not, it's, you could easily preach this or read this legalistically, but that, it doesn't seem like that's the tone. No, it seems much more, um, I mean, the thing I came away with, from with this passage was this idea of just constantly turning toward God, and, and all of these passages, honestly, like this idea of turning toward God and letting go of the world and the letting go of the ways of being in the world um, to be in the ways of God. Um, it's interesting that you use the term being, because it's like, it, it's almost like being kind of action flows from being, right? Like that you can, I mean, Thomas Merton talks about like the difference between seeing yourself or being yourself. When you're seeing yourself, you're being the shadow self, like, oh, I'm at the cocktail party or at the work meeting and trying to convince everybody who I am versus just being yourself. And I feel like Paul's almost saying, be yourself, you know, get into that self that's hidden with God and Christ. And then the rest of the stuff will flow from that. Yeah. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth for you have died and your life. I mean, your being, your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ who is uh, your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this, this um, aligning your being with, with Christ um, and being who you are as, as a child of God. Yeah. And that's interesting language. You have died. <laughs> like somehow salvation is death. Like, you know, and that seems like he's saying that though, in a good way, like, uh-huh. it's like, we think you're dead. Like, Oh my gosh, you missed your deadline or something, but he's saying <laughs> you've died and that's great. <laughs> but hopefully you've died to fornication, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. You know, you're dying to these these earthly ways. I mean, it talks about, I'm sort of getting the text mixed up a little bit in my mind, but um, do not lie about it. Um, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Yeah. And, and in the idea that those things, you died to those cause they were false life, you know? And so you had to die because that was your life. And you know, there's no salvation is death and resurrection. So there's no resurrection without dying. Right. 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 Yeah. And then there's this great thing. Also at the end, you have this great radical sort of, sociology you know that that this new self you know there's neither greek nor and jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian cynthian slave free but christ is all in all so there's this sense in which there's this radical sociology you haven't just died to these things which you thought were life but these even sociological markers 
you've died to those. And so it's this, it's, you know, I think of the Marxist philosopher Slavoj Žižek who says like Paul was the ultimate Marxist wow. he told this story that actually created a revolution you know <laughs> but he's saying wow well, this is like all these things are imperial kind of constructs mm-hmm. and, and now that you've died they don't have any mm-hmm. power anymore right yeah I think of my social theory class my sociology theory class and the social construction of reality and what what are the constructions of our understanding of ourselves that come from, not from God, but from society and, and those around us? So certainly all of these constructions are are uh, from the world. Yeah, this and, they're, and they're ones piece. we die to. You know, they're the ones that, they, they were killing us, and then we mm-hmm. die to them. And in uh, this irony, then we're raised to a different kind of a life. Right. I was reading in the in Luke uh, right before that next passage, you know, there's this part about um, you are worrying about the wrong kind of death. You're worrying about the ones who can kill your body, but you're not worried about the power of the God that can can determine what happens after your death. Gives a smile when the pain comes. The pain gonna make everything alright. Speaking of Luke, yes. Let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke. Usually, I say speaking of Jesus. But speaking of Luke, <laughs> who is you know writing this story about Jesus. Yeah, this is so interesting because, I mean, what I find fascinating about this text is that it's almost like Jesus bows out of a dispute. Like some in the crowd says to Jesus, "Tell teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me," but he he said to him, "Friend." who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? Which is ironic because he's the only person that probably in the crowd that should be the judge. Uh, and then he says, right. and then he just says, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for one's life. That's not you know, consistent abundance or possession. And I love this. He says, this land of a rich man, you know, it was really productive. And he thought, he, he thought to himself, right. That's great. Like, what should I do? Like, self? He's almost like, self, what should I do? Right. Self. This is so great for us, self. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. You know, like, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's really capitalize on this, and we'll, we'll uh, I'll put down barns and, like, Monopoly. It's like, I'll get, I'll get houses and then hotels, and I'll get boardwalk, and then I'll get a park place. <laughs> and he's like, no, these right. things are so fragile, right? And, right? and this all could be taken from you, and then what will you have? Right. You know, I was looking at the Greek... Um, in this, and the word soul, soul, and life, this very night your life will be demanded of you. That's the same word, um, soul, soul, and life, uh, self, or whatever you want to translate it. So the thing that the person is talking to, the self, is actually then having to be, is being demanded of, you know, of you. And who are you without your soul, your breath, your spirit, your um, your spirit is another way of translating it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, because it's it's this. It's almost plays into this sh- seeing yourself versus being yourself. Like you kind mm-hmm. of like this self that you're constructing, right? It's it's you know it's funny because Paul's saying focus on that hidden with God in Christ self, man, and you lost control of it and you can't hold on to it, but He holds you. And here it's kind of like 
self, we're going to be huge. We're going to be bigger right. than the Kardashians. <laughs> we're going to be influencers. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, today it would be like, and then once you get a million followers, we'll get 10 million followers. Right. <laughs> and it's going to be great. And then we can relax and eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because you could... I, whether you have a lot of money or, or a little money, like, or whatever, I feel like whatever kind of power we have in the world. I mean, I, I always think the gospel is better news to you if you're not powerful, right? Because right. you're closer to that, hey, I can't be fraudulent and act like I can control anything, right? Like, but you still can try, you know, but, uh-huh. when, but it's a lot, I think it's a lot easier here as good news if you have a lot less control, a lot fewer control mechanisms. But mm-hmm. the problem is when you have, wealth over that's translated in your context it looks like you can control a lot yeah it does but then the reality is it could all go away tonight yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting robert capon who is my favorite commentator on the parables uh says says this he says in a quiet last line jesus adds this is how it is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich in God's sight. I stay on literally into God. Jesus, upon whom the father looks and says, this is my beloved son, is the only rich man in the world. We who spend our whole lives in the pursuit of wealth come in the end only to the poverty of death. And we complain bitterly, unable to make head or tail of such a cruel reversal. But in Jesus, who made his grave with the wicked in their moral poverty and with the rich man in the death of all his possessing all the pointless pursuing and all the sad incomprehension are turned to our good he waits for us in our deaths quite literally there is nothing we need to do except die yeah i I feel like it's so interesting because so often whether you're whatever kind of church you're in it's always there's something to do read your bible more or join this cause more or vote for this person or against that person or something or you know center your but there's the sense in which all you have to do is die. And on the other side of death is the resurrection. And in the, yeah, it is a peaceful word. It's, it's like the Indigo Girls, right? The hardest to learn is the least complicated. It's not complicated. Right. <laughs> not it's just hard. Yeah. But how do we bring that letting go? I mean, we, in our own Bread for the World movement, we're working really hard to end hunger. We're, we're constantly maintaining relationships with our members of Congress. We're trying to write the right letters and have the right influence and find the right people and do all this fundraising. And, and in the end, it's not to say that we shouldn't be doing all those things. I mean, or certainly we want our treasures to go toward God, but, but in the end, um, like the answer is death <laughs> and resurrection and new life. Um, and maybe those are the ways we go in new life, but, but how do we bring our new lives into the everyday work um, that we're doing? I've often heard like ministers, like preachers, I've heard this analogy so many times and it's almost trite. It's like that thing, like Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And that's so trite and yet so true. Right. <laughs> like, Annoyingly true. Yeah. There's this great, like saying that, uh, like all Christians are are beggars telling other beggars where they found bread, and on some level, you could do something like combating hunger uh, on one side of the grave or the other, right? Like you know, you, you, like and when you do it on one side, it it becomes a kind of striving. When you do it on the other side, it's just a beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. Nancy, thanks for doing this with me, and may all our listeners find 
bread and have bread uh, and be and spiritually and physically and be mindful of those who don't have it physically or spiritually. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. I'll have fun. you back soon. Thanks. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Nancy for coming on the podcast and thanks to you once more for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare be well.